Well, it's great to be with you here this morning, and hopefully you've enjoyed already in the start of the year as we've kind of broken out of the New Testament into a bit of Old Testament in our studies. And uh, this week is kind of a new uh, beginning for uh, us as a church. To my understanding, our church has never done a study in the book of Hosea as a church, and so we're starting that here this morning. Kind of a uh, not typically one that gets a lot of attention, somewhat as I'm diving in, a bit scandalous, one might say. In fact, if they had ratings for Bible stories, this would definitely be in the like PG-13 at least uh, range. In fact, uh, I was interesting this a uh, couple days ago, Chad and I usually check in with each other uh, just to see uh, how uh, kind of the worship time can complement the, the teaching time and vice versa. And here's a dialogue on a text exchange here. He says, hey, he's checking in. Howdy, can you tell me a bit about the direction of the message I'm sadly not up to speed on Hosea. I will be learn, in learning mode, excited. But here's what he, he says. Well, those first two chapters are uh, something. And uh, my response, new territory for sure. Still working through it, but focus likely on what hurts God's heart. Hosea gets to role play what God experiences with his people. Are you giving thought to some of the harshness of the language for female ears? And so the, Ch Ch Chad's making sure, being a, quite the gentleman here, making sure that our bases are covered because in all honesty, like when you're reading this story, it can definitely be taken out of context. You can, you can read this and be like, what in the world is happening? So we're going to do our very best to make sure we're setting things up. It's kind of, here's a, a way to look at it. It's kind of like if you're starting to read an intense, super intense love story, only you're starting in chapter 12. The, the dialogue would not make a lot of sense. You'd be like, man, there's clearly a lot of history here prior to this point in the story, and that's the case as it is with Hosea. Definitely a lot of history. Let me pray before we start to unpack this amazing story of God's love for his bride. Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to expand kind of our understanding of you through the whole Bible. We can't just focus solely on uh, the, the love aspect of your character without also looking at the justice part, the the uh, piece of who you are. God, we ask that through this, we have a, a better understanding of who you are, the mercy that's been extended to us, and how awesome the grace that we live under is through Jesus Christ. We invite you now to speak to us. We ask that you would allow us to put any kind of distraction on the shelf and that we'd fully engage here this morning. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, so a little uh, background, but I wanted to first start by reading verse 1, just to give a little bit of explanation of what's going on. The very first, one, uh, first verse in Hosea, chapter 1, says, The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Let me uh, give a little background, and I think, uh, I th I think probably an a explanation that makes most sense in my mind and hopefully in yours is the idea of unrequited love. Do you guys know what I mean when I use that expression? The idea of someone that you are crazy about. Anybody remember the dating days and it was so frustrating? Somebody that you're absolutely crazy about and they want nothing to do with you. Anybody have that experience? Mine, that started fairly young. In fact, in third grade was my very 
first crush. This is way before ever uh, coming across Adrian, and this is back in like full head of hair days. Uh, this is a uh, uh, third grade. This little girl, blonde hair, blue eyes. Her name was Lucy, and I had such a crush on Lucy, but she was only interested in Barbie dolls, wanted nothing with a creepy third grader already interested in girls, uh, but, but, but that was unrequited love. It was, it was hard. It was painful, but I've moved past it. Thank the Lord uh, for Adrian on the other side of that. But uh, you think about that, and you're like, oh, maybe that's a, a picture that we understand, a relationship, a picture that makes sense. But in this case, it's even deeper than that. You see, this wasn't just a, a uninterested person on the other end of affection. This is the picture of God and Israel is more about a bride because a covenant has already been made. Promises have already been extended where there's commitment, yet the bride keeps wandering off into the arms of new love. And that's really the, the picture, and it's a little bit heartbreaking. And for some of us, it's, it's hard to understand this, especially, let's be honest, guys, sometimes when we get uh, kind of labeled the bride of Christ, it's a little awkward. Somebody sent me th this picture, how guys feel when they get called the bride of Christ. <laughs> you think about that, but if really, if there's the idea of the picture, sorry, uh, that's disturbing. <laughs> But here's the, the explanation of that is when we see it through the lens of unrequited love, I think that helps us because all of us get it. The idea of when there's affection going one direction and it's not returned the other direction. And here's the idea. All the way this love story has been going on since all the way back with Abraham. You remember the promise that he made. He said, I'll be your God and you will be my people. This was the way it was supposed to be between God and his creation, the creator God and the ones that he's designed, made to be in relationship with him. But all the way back then, it didn't take long for Israel to wander off to new loves and affection and even bringing them to Egypt. You remember they were brought under slavery because of the outcome of this rejection of God. In God's mercy and kindness, he restores them, brings them out of Egypt, leads them eventually, after much wandering, eventually to the promised land. We know this part of the story, right? And then once in the promised land, God set up different judges to help set in place, to help uh, administrate the kingdom. But they didn't want judges. What did they want instead? kings. Give us kings. Give us a new object of affection. Well, the king's thing didn't work out very well either. After 39 different kings, they ultimately strayed under Solomon, who is the most wise person to ever live, but he led them astray. In response to that, in response to their unfaithfulness while under Solomon, God broke the nation, and this is where we're at now. This, God broke the nation into two parts. The northern kingdom made up of 10 tribes called Israel, and the southern kingdom made up of two tribes called Judah. That's what we're reading about. It says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this message that he has for Hosea, try to track with me, is over 23 years, 23 years that he unloads a message for Israel through Hosea. During that time, there was four different kings of Judah. Tracking with me? Under, during that same time, there's only one king of Israel, the northern kingdom that he's mentioned there, Jeroboam. We know about him being especially unfaithful to God. 
So this is the period of time that God's breaking into the story with a message to them about their unfaithfulness. Here's the confusing thing, though. For an outsider looking in, this was a time period of incredible prosperity in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You would start to think to yourself, looking at these two uh, kingdoms, you start to think like, man, they must be under God's favor and under their blessing. They, but here's the thing, much like with Samson, don't confuse outward favor with something going right with their relationship with God. This period of time, they were known for even having outward displays of religiosity, but still something was missing. The thing that God's always wanted all the way from the beginning. He's not interested in a bunch of arbitrary rules and regulations. That's still so many people's confusion. What does he want from us, from his people? He wants our heart. He wants our heart. He wants relationship. And right now, the Israel, both north and south, have wandered off to different gods. And the gods in that time period didn't look like something bending a knee to and worship. The gods of sex, money, politics, slash kings sound similar today, right? Still the same things competing for God's attention. And God is fed up. Unrequited love is about to experience its outcome. And see if you notice any kind of tone from God in these next couple of verses. See if you can pick it up. He's laying it on pretty thick. Verse two, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblem, and she conceived and bore him a son. Whoa, that needs a little bit of explanation. So let me, let me talk about this. So this is the very first time we're introduced to Hosea. Hosea, we don't know much about him other than the only thing notable is the fact that God's choosing to start speaking to him and through him. His name, which is kind of cool, actually means salvation. So I think that's kind of noteworthy. But this book starts with kind of Hosea's personal experience with God, and God gives him some pretty crazy instructions. What is the instruction for Hosea? I'm not even going to make you repeat it. He's telling Hosea to go find a pro Hordom is not a, a city or a town. He's telling them him to go find a prostitute to marry. What? Like, is, it, is, is that in your Bible too? I'm just making sure because uh, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And what he's saying there is the reason why he says, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Guess what? Hosea somehow, I don't know if there was a, a, a contest or what, but he won the opportunity to be the demonstration or the a visual kind of picture, if you will, object lesson of what God experiences with Israel. He's going to feel what God feels. He's going to experience what God feels. He's going to be the demonstration. He's going to tell the story to Israel of the pain of betrayal, of having a heart that gets smashed repeatedly, yet you just keep on loving. It's the crazy love story 
of God for his people, and he's picking Hosea to play the leading part in this role. Probably for some of us, not a role we'd be interested in playing. Prostitution in that day and age was real similar to today. Not exactly a desired kind of occupation, kind of an occupation of shame. The picture is this, that it was something often done out of desperation, but it was a broken picture of God's design for sex to be something between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, not something to be shared with others. Israel was willing to go and share with all different lovers, but God was not interested in that type of relationship. So he calls Hosea to live out, to be a a visual demonstration of what God has experienced. It's interesting that there's really no record of debate with them. I'm like, what's going on? Hosea is willing. I don't, I don't know uh, what's going on there. But either way, it, we're told that he marries a woman by the name of Gomer. That's a bummer of a name, right? Uh, but Gomer, uh, I don't see that on any uh, name list. Gomer is actually kind of a uh, the, uh, interesting word, means completion. He marries Gomer and they have a son together. Let's see how this plays itself out. If you thought that first section was intense. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Listen to this. And the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Whoo! Aren't you glad you came to church this Sunday? So what's what's happening here? What's going on? First off, you, you see that God's continuing to speak to Hosea. First, he gives him instructions to marry a prostitute. Now he's wanting to give some input on the names of his children. Now, when we were uh, back in uh, Chicago in Judson University, we put on the dorm door. We had a sign where people had an opportunity to kind of write potential names for our children. And I was looking through that this week, and I was looking through it, and I was like, you know what? On that list, I never saw Jezreel. I never saw No Mercy. I never saw Not My God. Like, not exactly names that, that are proposed in child rearing. What this is is a picture This is a picture that God's doing to show the outcome of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. This is a demonstration. These children get to be walking demonstrations of the outcome of Israel's rejection of their groom. Here in this picture, you think about it, because sometimes you read this and you're like, well, what is is God doing? Why is he so angry? What's going on? Remember that we're looking at this in chapter 12 of an ongoing relationship of unfaithfulness. 
Now, ladies, help me kind of in this role play thinking through this. Imagine if you had a girlfriend that wanted to sit down with you over Starbucks, met over here off of Canaan Road, sat down, and they start telling you the story, start telling you about their husband that has just a a track record of unfaithfulness. Years and years back, he had cheated, and they tell you, well, but I I brought him back, and we, we worked it out. And then you're like, man, well, that's awesome that you worked it out. Did it ever happen again? And they're like, yeah, it's happened like, Ah, a few hundred times. I keep bringing him back, keep bringing him back again and again. And, and this time he, he, he's cheated again. What do you think I should do? Ladies, how would you respond to that? Now we know biblically that the God, even though he hates divorce, provides the possibility for it based on what? Marital unfaithfulness. He says, if you haven't been faithful, if you've broken that vow, there is permission to cut the ties and say, you know what? I'm going to turn you over to your choice, to the outcome of your choice. And here's the last thing you'd say. He's had plenty of opportunity, right? He's had plenty of opportunity. He's had plenty of chances. This is the story of Israel. They've had plenty, plenty, plenty of opportunity to come back and make that relationship right. Now God is coming to the place in the same way with a covenant back then, there's two sides of a legal document. If one side of it was broken, you could take legal recourse. Now God has the opportunity to say, I'm gonna take recourse for this broken covenant. He names this first son Jezreel. Jezreel means God will scatter. God will scatter. That's the meaning of the word. It's actually a physical location there as well, known for massive bloodshed. It was most noted as the location where Saul and his sons were killed by the Philistines. So a place known for for massacre and blood, saying that I'm going to scatter you. He says that your bow will be broken. In other words, their strength will be taken. This is an anticipation of the outcome of their decision to reject God. Do you remember in our Samson story where God finally just steps away and says, you're just gonna receive the outcome of your choices. Similar with this collective group of people. He's saying, I'm gonna step away. They don't realize it because they're in the middle of prosperity. Things are going great. They are one generation away from 732 BC where the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and literally annihilate just destroy the people there. They have no idea this is on the close horizon ahead for them. So they end up having in this this new marriage, a second child, this time a daughter. The daughter, they decide based on God's instruction, says, I want you to name her what? No mercy. What in the world? Can you imagine mothers? We have a lot of new moms here. Well, you got your new daughter. You're at the, the park. You're pushing her in a stroller. And someone comes up to you and they're like, oh, she's so adorable. What did you name her? You know, her dad and I, we decided we went with no mercy. What do you think? You're like, that's not a conversation you typically would, would hear. In this case, that's God's outcome. And some of us, when we're reading some of these verses, we're just like, I don't really like this version of God. Anybody else read this? And you're like, I feel kind of uncomfortable here. In fact, I'm looking at the clock, waiting for lunch. This is, this is awkward. This is an awkward conversation. 
But here's the important thing. If we're going to understand the scope of who God is, yes, it's super important to understand his love and his mercy, but it's also unbelievably important to understand that he's a just God. He's a just God, and there is an end to his mercy. You're like, what do you mean there's an end to his mercy? Think about it. Even present day, he provides mercy to every single person on this planet, providing all the way to the moment they breathe their very last breath, having the potential to call out in a, at a point of bending a knee and calling out and embracing Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin, accepting his finished work on the cross. That's mercy all the way to the very last breath that somebody breathes. But at some point, that mercy comes to a conclusion and someone bears the outcome of their choice. The outcome in that case is not good. The outcome of embracing Jesus Christ is spending eternity with him in glory in heaven. That's an awesome thing. The outcome of rejection is what? Eternity separated from God in eternal judgment. Here's the, here's the reality is all God is doing in that is providing the outcome of someone's choice. I, I often hear people say like, how could God, a good God send somebody to hell? You're like, that's so, so cruel. But really, isn't that him just allowing the outcome of spending eternity separated from a perfect God? Think about some of the characteristics of who God is. God is love. God, not, not just he does loving things, he defines love. Imagine eternity separated from love. God is good. Imagine eternity separated from anything good. All God is doing is being a gentleman and allowing someone to have what they've said. They want nothing to do with God. God, in his, in his kindness, gives the opportunity all the way to the very end. Then he says, okay, I'll give you what you're asking for. And that's a scary reality. In this case, no mercy is what's on the end of their rejection of him as their groom. He promises it's a little glimpse of, of God's coming kindness in that picture there. He says, call her name no mercy, for I have no mercy. Uh, but then he says, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. What do we know about the line of Jesus? Who did he come through? Through the line of Judah. So he will provide the rescue plan. We'll get to that in a moment, but first, He's in the moment of consequence for their actions. They have a third child, a son. The name is Loami. The son actually, the name actually means not my people. Now what they had taken pride in and so many, even still today, so many people that are of Jewish descent, they would say that he's our God and we are his people. But here's what's happening. What does God say? He says, you are not my people and I am not your God. In essence, this is the divorce between God and Israel. He's saying, I'm stepping away from this covenant. You've betrayed this. You've, you've gone off to different lovers. I'm no longer your God, and you're no longer my people. Wow. Talk about an intense moment in the history of Israel. This is God saying, you're going to receive the outcome. This is old, co this is old covenant uh, understanding, and this is the, what the relationship looked like back then. This is God demonstrating what righteous anger looks like. 
Sometimes we think of anger as just like, you know, anger is supposed to be something we, we never experience and, and we avoid it at all costs. We're told not to sin in our anger, but righteous anger is a good thing. Think about it. Look about across the landscape of our world right now. There's things that should make us angry. You look at famine and, and not enough food for people to eat. You're like, there's plenty of resources everyone for everyone on this planet. That should anger us. The idea that there's more slavery on our planet now than before abolition, you're just like, wait a second, that, that should anger us right now. The fact that Christians right now around the globe are being persecuted, that should anger us, that should stir us up. The fact that there's a law passed in New York this last week that we're all familiar with, jeopardizing the, 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 the life of newborn babies, that should what? Anger us. Anger can be a wonderful catalyst to action. Anger can be a wonderful catalyst. It can stir the pot and move us from what we'd normally stay comfortable. In this case, that's the way it worked under the old covenant was people were literally left with the law and the law demonstrated what? The fact that we can't keep the law. That's what the whole old covenant was, a demonstration to us that we can't seem to keep our side of the covenant. We can't keep our side of the deal. We wander off and we keep wandering off again and again and again. And apart from God's mercy and God's grace, man, we are in a predicament. Look at those names. That, that's the picture of, lo- of what it looked like before the mercy of God breaks through our inability to rescue ourselves and pending judgment for our sins. Are you guys looking forward to a little bit of hope here? Verse 10, can we bring a little bit of hope into this? Verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God, whoa, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Wait a second. What just happened here? The the craziest redirect. You're like, just when you thought the love story was over, just when you thought it was finished, All of a sudden, God is stepping in and saying, despite your unfaithfulness to this covenant, I am still faithful. Do you remember what he promised to Abraham? What did he promise about the kids and his offspring? He said they'd be as as great as the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or numbered. Wait a second, he's saying he's still going to do that? Oh, he he promised that this place where they're called not my people, he says, "I'll, I'll save them that they're children of the living God. Basically, the, these people that are separated and dispersed, he says they're going to be gathered together. Like, what, what is going on here? Yes, there's consequence, but here on the other side of this, God say, but I'm still going to be faithful because I can't get away from you guys. I am so crazy about you people. This love story just won't stop. He's determined, determined to restore you, to restore me, because he's crazy about us 
as his people. I love the introduction. So, so far, we've been looking at this picture of a husband and a wife, and that helps us with our, he, he always speaks in relational terms to help us make sense out of things. But he introduces, do you notice what he introduces here? A little nuance in it. He describes it, it shall be said, these, these people that were called not my people, it shall be said of them, children of the living God. All of a sudden, he's introducing a, a new dynamic. Do you see it there? He's, he's describing, you're, you're not just in a marriage relationship. I'm going to go with a new description. I'm going to call you chill, my children. He's like, that, that's maybe a more fitting example. I'll confess, and I think I've mentioned it before, before having kids, I'll be honest, I, I wasn't really crazy about kids. I know that you don't want to hear that from your pastor. I wasn't really crazy about kids. Then all of a sudden, having my own kids changed everything in my perspective of things. And not only do I like my kids, I like other kids, love kids. Our, our church is having all kinds of babies. It's, it's, it's so fun to, to watch and observe. But here's what changes. Man, once you've had your own child or grandchild, I don't know where you're at, or, or, or if you are just, you are a child, either way, all of a sudden it makes a lot more sense when God starts using that imagery for that relationship because all of a sudden, man, there's something different about your own kids. You see it specifically. I'll share an example, not to get us too off uh, track. But um, my uh, when I, before having kids, I'd go to different sporting events and I'd see parents, kind of the way that they interact with referees and uh, the the game, and 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 I'd think I'd be like, man, those people are so messed up. But this this one time, my dad went to a, a basketball game of mine in, in high school. My dad got thrown out of the game. I was like, man, he has problems. He has issues. And here now. My kids are starting to enter into sports. My, my daughter, Alexa, was in volleyball this last fall. My, my son, Chase, is in basketball now. I remember, and here's the thing is I know that I'm a pastor, and so I'm being watched. So, so, so my words might be a little bit more under control, but nobody can watch what's going on inside here, right? Anybody else with me? Nobody else can play what's playing through my mind. Alexa, man, she had like three or four great serves in a row. And I'm like, man, get her the MVP trophy. You know, somebody needs to celebrate this. Like, it's not just a win. It's Alexa celebration day. Like, all of a sudden, your mind, you're looking past all their weaknesses. My son playing basketball. Before having a son playing basketball, I would look at a, a kid that wasn't doing that great, and I'd be like, well, yeah, they should probably be on the bench. They're not doing that great. All of a sudden, if my son's not playing that great, I'm like, you know what? How's he ever going to get any better unless he gets some playing time, right? <laughs> Do you see the twist there? There's a change of heart all of a sudden, and all of this because, man, something changes with a child. Something changes with a child. And when we start to see ourselves as a beloved child of God, all of a sudden that's something we can resonate with. And the thing that allows for that, you're like, how is this possible? How did he go from angry God to loving Father, the living God that's gathering together Judah and Israel, that's no longer calling them not my people, that's all of a sudden wanting to multiply them like the sands of the sea? You're like, how is that, that possible? Look at the very last line there. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Like there's, a, there's some hint in that. Jezreel was a picture of judgment. 
Jezreel was a picture of bloodshed. It was a picture all throughout the entire Old Testament of, of, of things being tormented and judgment and a miserable picture. Why would it say, great is the day of Jezreel? You know why it says great is the day of Jezreel? Because our God in his crazy love for his bride, said, you deserve divorce. You deserve no more mercy. You deserve all of this outcome of your poor decision to reject me and go to other gods. But guess what? I'm going to go take it in Jezreel. I'm going to be the object of all of my own wrath is going to be poured out on me on a cruel Roman cross so that you can be multiplied like the sands of the seashore so that you can be children of the living God, so that you can experience mercy once more. And here's the fun thing. All of this was talking about what? A future day, uh, another side of the covenant. It was a prophecy of what was to come. The fun thing for us as we sit here in this year 2019 is what is this? What was spoken about coming in the future, the future is what? Now. The future is now. The future is now. We should have been divorced, no more mercy, done with, finished. God should have cut ties completely because of our repeated unfaithfulness. But instead, in his unbelievable love, in this unbelievable love story, he entered in, absorbed the wrath that we deserved. Man, I'll tell you what, for me, this should paint the picture of his love for me. And there should never be a day that I'm like, oh, I don't know if he could love me. Are you, are you kidding? He's crazy about you. The extreme measures he went to find and restore you. It's unbelievable. It should forever be on our lips. Let me close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this reality that you're not a pushover God, that you are a merciful God, but you're also a just God that demands justice. And there's something inside of us, if we're real honest, that screams and longs for justice as long as it's not for us. God, I thank you that you extended your grace by absorbing the justice that we demanded, that we deserved. How we praise you for that reality. God, may that compel us to hearts of gratitude. God, may this be something that moves us to praise, that moves us to worship, that we're a, a picture of your extreme, unbelievable, incomprehensible love for us. Praise you for that reality. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, my hope is that is the response to this truth about his love for us, that his praise would forever be on our lips, even going into the week ahead. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday. If there's something we can specifically be praying for you after the service, we have a few volunteers available up in the front. God bless you.